Hey everybody, we'll be taking some time off for the rest of 2018 and then back in the new year. This year was a great year for the podcast. We were joined by so many great people doing exciting things, and I couldn't do it without you, the listeners. Have a happy new year, and see you in 2019. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Atish Salvi, CTO of Takeometrics. Atish, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chad. So we've worked together. We have. <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hopefully the walk across Boston wasn't too, too uh, far. The transition from Summer Street to Winter Street was not too hard on me. <laughs> so let's start off by um, giving folks an uh, introduction to what Takeometrics actually is. Sure. So Takeometrics is a relatively young startup. We just raised our Series A. Congratulations, uh, by the way. Thank you so much. It was very exciting. What we do is make software to help retailers build an operating system for their businesses. It turns out selling physical goods is tricky for those of us who sell bits or have for a lot of our careers. Like you kind of forget how hard it is to sell an object in the real world. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, logistics, inventory management, pricing, advertising. So we're trying to build uh, an operating system that does all of that for small sellers. Mm -hmm. So how long have you been at Takeometrics now? It's been a while. It's amazingly, it's been two years. And I just realized that the other day and it was mind bending. But yeah, two years. Yeah. And how long did Takeometrics exist before you joined? About three years before I joined. But I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's interesting with startups, right? You know, when you have a major pivot at a startup, it really feels like you're starting a whole new company. Right. And I would say that about a couple of years ago, that's that's what Takeometrics did. It really, it transitioned from a really amazing lifestyle business into a company that has the potential to, to go big. Yeah. And what do you think was the turning point for that to happen? In a lot of ways, I think it was a realization by Alistair, our CEO, of the opportunity that lay in front of mm -hmm. the company. You know, going from building a platform to help run his own retail business to saying, wait a second, I think I've built something with immense value to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And what do I need to do in order to realize the full potential of that value? Mm -hmm. And pivoting out of just serving one seller primarily or a small basket of sellers to trying to build something that's going to serve millions of people. And obviously over the last many years, but it seems to me like over the last four or five is when Amazon really started to have a significant impact on retail with Absolutely. merchants and different fulfillment models. And yeah, I mean, that's been coming for a while, right? I mean, I think Amazon's first third-party sellers. So let, let me explain that a little bit. Like so mm -hmm. Amazon, when you buy on Amazon, it turns out the majority of the time, over 80% of the time, you're actually buying what you're buying from somebody that isn't Amazon themselves. It's mm -hmm. a seller. And that's recent. You know, uh, as early as three or four years ago, by and large, you were probably buying stuff from Amazon directly. But over the last few years, third-party sellers have become over 80% of Amazon's catalog, I think over 60% of their total revenue. So all of these millions of people like you and me, right, who've just found something really cool to sell are now selling it on Amazon. And that, you're right, has been a dramatic shift in the e-commerce retail environment mm -hmm. in sort of the same way that Airbnb aggregated a lot of small uh, hoteliers, right? We're looking to provide a single platform that helps all of those small sellers reach the market. Mm -hmm. 
What's involved in being an Amazon seller and what are some of the challenges? Boy, it's it's hard. Uh, you know, you have to find a product first and foremost, which means you have to find a supplier. Mm -hmm. That's tough. Uh, once you find the supplier, you have to you have a minimum shipment size. You're going to get the product shipped to you in a minimum of some number of thousands of units. You know, I consider myself an entrepreneur. But the truth is, compared to some of these sellers, I mean, I'm almost ashamed to call myself that. When you have to mortgage your house or go to your friends and family to get the capital to buy your first 1,000 or 2,000 units of something, right, that you have no idea how well it's necessarily going to sell. You just have this belief. Mm -hmm. And then you go out into the market with that good. You, you get a warehouse. You package it up. You figure out how to put it in a box, uh, get it to Amazon, have to figure out what price to price it at in a real-time market, how to bid on keywords to advertise it and then deal with returns, reviews. It's an incredibly complicated job. Mm -hmm. And you have to do that for every single thing you sell. So Takeometrics seeks to help make that easier, make yes, it better. absolutely. So how does it do that? So it turns out that the hardest part about selling stuff is making very complicated decisions that fundamentally require data science and machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. they, they feel like they should be intuitive, like, well, how many, how many more units of this good should I order? Mm -hmm. But the truth is in order to make them, you have to take into consideration so many factors. You have to think about, well, how many units am I going to get returned from the last bunch that I sold? How many units are already on a pallet coming to me? How many units do I sell a week? How many more weeks am I going to sell at that pace? So you've got to do all of this fundamental projection and prediction in order to really hit the nail on the head on how much more to buy or what to bid on a keyword when you're advertising or what to price a good at. There are entire areas of economics, right, that focus on each of those, you know, entire PhD theses that could be written on each of those. And the world expects small sellers to just come up with how to do this using Excel and basic intuition. And, and that doesn't really work very well. Mm, or it certainly doesn't scale. It certainly doesn't scale. I mean, and, and so what we're trying to do is democratize data science, right? Democratize mm -hmm. machine learning to take that PhD level mathematics and make it available to anybody who's selling on Amazon. I mean, you know, if you're Target or Walmart, you've paid someone, SAP, IBM, tens mm -hmm. of millions of dollars to have them solve these problems for you. But if you're a mom and pop shop, if you're a small seller, SAP isn't going to take your phone call, right? right? And, and so we want to be there for those people. So you joined two years ago, and what did things look like when you joined? What was like job number one? For yeah, you? Uh, survival <laughs> was job number one. The story I like to tell is the first week that I joined, we had eight engineers, and in the first week, four of them left the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were left with a team of four engineers, and of course, the, the four that left the company were the most senior engineers. And it was because the company was going through so much transition, there was no sort of engineering management in place. It was a really tough time for the startup. And we had this amazing business opportunity in front of us, this amazing idea, and a very, very small team. And we needed to move extremely fast because the market was moving fast underneath us. So the first job was just to stay alive, to get a product out the door mm -hmm. that brought in revenue. We were a bootstrapped company. We were not funded. We didn't have millions and millions sitting around in a bank. So we, we had to just keep alive. Mm -hmm. There was a working product. Yes. But it needed to scale. It needed to scale. And it was, it was having real difficulty doing that because it had mm -hmm. been built really to serve a small client base. Right. And it wasn't also necessarily the exact feature fit for 
where the market wanted to go. So that that product was focused on uh, certain kinds of metrics reporting. The market was very interested at that point in advertising optimization. Yeah. And so we pivoted into making an advertising optimization product as our first foray into providing what we call retail optimization, which is overall optimizing for profitability. And to do that, and I think this is, Chad, where, where we intersected, right? Like I... I was in such a tenuous place. I had a four-person engineering team, a really large mandate, and I needed help actually getting a prototype off the ground quickly and getting ThoughtBot in the door was one of the ways in which we managed to achieve that. I mean, I have really fond and also traumatic memories of that sort of first three months working with uh, Mm -hmm. Chris and working with Joe Ferris, getting that product put together crossing all of our fingers, hoping that this thing was going to to fly, and then watching it go from zero to thousands of users Mm -hmm. in a couple of quarters. It was just the most amazing experience. And now you have a lot of customers, and I also understand like a lot of data moving through the system, right? Yeah, I would say that you know, we have about 3,500 uh, sellers that are using our platform. You know, Each of them has hundreds of SKUs. I mean, we have a total of millions on the order of tens of millions of products worth of data that we're dealing with in order to help these sellers run their businesses. Mm-hmm. We are uh, at this point managing uh, more than 1% of Amazon's uh, total third-party revenue through our system, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, 5 to $6 billion. That's amazing. Do you have a sense of how much data is moving through the system, like per minute or something like that? Oh my gosh! Uh, so I think about you know per, on a weekly basis, uh, we're starting to approach about uh, four or five hundred gigabytes mm-hmm. of data per week. So mm-hmm. you know, not like massive scale right. yet, uh, but large enough that when you're looking at something like Postgres or you're looking at some of the more traditional database technologies, they're starting to feel the heat. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're starting to have to diversify our tech stack out to Snowflake, out to something that looks a bit more like Cassandra in order to be able to handle the recall speed that our customers expect for their data uh, with that amount of data per customer. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the architecture, the original product was in Ruby. Yep. But when it came to making the new product, it's it's not necessarily in Ruby. <laughs> no. And, and no, Ruby served us very well in the beginning. Mm-hmm. As a prototyping language, I think it's unparalleled, right? I think we, we would never have been able to, in three months, build a product that scales to hundreds of customers and expressed a, a real complete MVP using Java or Scala, which is where we are today. But what we discovered very quickly after we deployed that and got real market traction was once you're starting to deal with large data volumes, especially when you're dealing with a lot of JSON coming through the system, you're trying to process, parse, store, recall, Ruby started to have a really difficult time keeping up. Mm -hmm. And so we pivoted out of Ruby and started replacing backend components with Scala, going to a more functional programming streaming architecture, because that was the fundamental nature of the data coming through, right? We're Mm -hmm. getting these streams from Amazon that we're attempting to ingest uh, and then replay back to the user with some machine learning on top of it. Right. And I think you could probably make the argument that you could go to more of a functional streaming architecture with Ruby. It probably wouldn't be as performant, but it would probably work. Right. But I I think you also layer in what you said around machine learning and data science. Right. And that's where you also start to say, well... Ruby doesn't have access to those. Well, I mean, same neither does Scala or Java particularly, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, in fact, our machine learning stack is entirely in Python, mm-hmm. 
and we have cues to connect the pieces together. I would imagine that Ruby, but again, you know, when you look at Spark, when you look at Flink, when you look at the the big right. MapReduce technologies out there, we wanted to be in a language that right. was fundamental to those. Mm-hmm. And Scala and Java are fundamental to those. I, I would imagine Haskell would have been perhaps another route right. we could have taken, mm-hmm. but we like the JVM, you know, and, and I think so much of architecture ends up being a choice that's made on the basis of the people you have in-house, right? right? And the architects that we have, uh, Daniel Robert and uh, Drew Herbst, um, you know, they're both uh, very familiar with the JVM, really, mm-hmm. really strong on, on the Java platform. So Scala became a natural place for us to land. Yeah. Now, with the system that is in place, uh, you mentioned now you're starting to think about at the database level. That's your next sort of frontier Abs- for scaling? Absolutely. I mean, we, we started out with Postgres, uh, and it has served us really well, but mm-hmm. it doesn't scale horizontally, mm-hmm. right? Fundamentally, you cannot take a table that's grown too large and flip a switch and get it to scale out, mm-hmm. especially when you're storing a large amount of data that looks very document-esque. Right. It's not the ideal solution. And so, you know, of course, our our machine learning team has already moved over to using Snowflake. Mm-hmm for their store uh, and starting to operate on top of that. But for the front end, we need a better store to be able to present all of this data to the seller. If you're a seller, you want to be able to see on a per product level, every performance metric you can imagine about a product at any time scale, cross cut by any filter uh, that you want at the snap of your fingers. Mm-hmm. And doing that purely through Postgres is not going to, to fly. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're looking at Cassandra. There are some services out there that actually scale, purport to scale Postgres out that we're also looking at, but we're going to end up down one of those roads. Mm-hmm. So taking a step back a little bit, you've dealt with these kinds of problems, not just at take a metric. Sure. How do you approach these kinds of things? We we all talk about not doing premature optimization. Absolutely. But if you don't think about the things in advance a little bit, then you're going to back yourself into a corner. Right. So how do you think about striking that balance? That's That's a great question. You know, my experience has been that organizations are often unduly optimistic about the scale that they're going to achieve, mm-hmm. right? I think as a CTO, my, my most common use case is someone in sales or marketing telling me, there are going to be millions yeah. of users. Are you ready for millions of users? And you're like, well, okay, I'll go get ready for millions of users. And then, you know, a thousand people show up, right? right? And so I think there is where the premature optimization, I think from an executive level, is just a really important defensive posture to not end up accidentally gearing up for a party that never happens, mm-hmm. right? And so I think if I had to do it over again with take a metrics, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I would do exactly what we did, which is build something fast that scales in a limited fashion on well-known technologies. We're on Heroku, mm-hmm. right? We don't have any DevOps overhead. Like we, we chose the easiest route to prototype and get market validation. And once the cash flow starts flowing in, and once you get your Series A, once you have the money, then you have the leisure of being able to really reconsider your choices. Mm-hmm. And you can throw money at the problem up until then, right? You can just keep upgrading your Postgres database. Heroku has lots of room Mm -hmm. as long as I am willing to pay them more every month and buy yourself the time to make the underlying architectural shifts. Mm -hmm. I would recommend absolutely starting out with market validation, get your first few hundred customers and make sure that they're really happy before you start getting ready for the thousands of the tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. And while we've been talking, you've, you've thrown out lots of different names of things like Snowflake. And then, like, as a CTO, what do you do to stay current with all the different options and changes? And yeah, it, you know, so it's difficult. I, I think 
for any one human being to stay on top of technology in every segment of a stack, right, from the database all the way to the front end and all the frameworks that are, that are informing our front end layer, I, as a CTO, very candidly, lean a lot on my architects, which are specialized mm -hmm. in either the back or the front end, and have the time in their schedules to spend a lot of their, are expected to spend a lot of their time reading, studying, going to conferences, going out and doing things of that nature, and let them inform me. So I have my biggest source of learning are my own employees, right? Mm -hmm. Are the people that uh, you know I'm privileged to work with on the team. They are constantly on top of what's going on. I also have my own network. Uh, obviously, I've, you know, I'm part of a CTO forum. I've got the general blogs that I read. But by and large, the best data I get is, is from people who I've given the time to actually make that their job. Mm -hmm. And when you actually have a problem that you're facing, do you have like a go-to sort of like thing you are most often doing? And that, that's like, we have two options. Let's prototype in both of them and see what's better. Or is there not a strategy like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So generally speaking, whenever we find that we have a challenge, let's say, let's take the database challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going, okay, well, we know we have to expand out of Postgres. Where do we go? The natural inclination is to do exactly that. So one of the things we've done organizationally as an engineering department is there is one director, Danny Roberts, who is focused entirely on being the, our director of technology. So Danny doesn't have any direct reports. Mm -hmm. His entire mandate is to, in fact, keep on top of backend technologies and prototype with a small, flexible team under him as projects require mm -hmm. and figure out what the best direction for our architecture is. You know, what we've discovered is trying, and I think engineering teams try to do this often, mixing the responsibilities of managing large teams and being an architect. It's very, very hard to actually do both effectively. I think being a great architect requires lots of hammock time, lots of blue sky time, right? And lots of time to just meander mm -hmm. without a, a strict deadline. As CTO, I don't have that luxury, honestly. So what I've done is try to create that position for someone else on my team. And typically what we do is when we come across a technology decision, Danny will take a small pack of engineers, prototype a few different approaches, and then do a presentation back to sort of our architectural leadership council on what's working. It sounds like you have a philosophy here. <laughs> Where did that philosophy come from? Uh, bitter experience, <laughs> yeah. right? Where, where, where do all, where, where they all come from, mm -hmm. right? Having done that myself, having been myself in the position where I was expected to both manage and produce technology guidance, I think taking care of people is a job that shouldn't be given second fiddle, mm -hmm. right? I think taking care of your engineers and their careers and their work uh, and their delivery is a full-time, really hard, complex job. And I think determining the architecture for a company or for a major piece of your platform is a full-time, difficult job. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to lump them into the same human, you're both going to end up in a situation where it's rare that that human is going to have an inclination towards both of those problems and have the time to really do them both justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have felt torn in that way myself. And I felt that with both of the directors uh, that we have at, at Takeometrics, we had very frank conversations about how they both felt torn in that way as well. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it was an organic process getting to, to where we are. Mm -hmm. You mentioned data science and machine learning. How have you integrated that into the team? So the data science part, 
we have an entire team of people who are doing nothing but data science. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Look, I, I hate the word data science. It just means nothing. It really means nothing at this point in the world. Um, so I like to think of it more tactically as modeling and simulation, mm-hmm. right? So there are models that need to be built and a simulation that informs those models. Those models need to produce and surface decisions that the front end can then absorb and use. And the skills required to build scalable models that can operate across very large amounts of data are actually their own package skill set. It's very hard because scientists are actually terrible at software by and large through no fault of their own. It's just not something they've spent their lives doing necessarily. So in fact, data science ends up being, in my opinion, two very different disciplines, one of which is what I would call data science engineering or data engineering, which Mm -hmm. is the process of making scalable all of the mathematics, and then data science, which is the process of producing the mathematics. And again, trying to lump those skill sets into one human is, in my opinion, not a great strategy because you're going to find yourself hunting for a unicorn or finding somebody very torn between my production system is falling down and I have to come up with an algorithm to solve this hard math problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you don't want somebody's brain going in both of those directions at the same time. So you have a team who's focused exclusively on that? Yes. So we have one team that's focused exclusively on productizing mathematics, mm-hmm. right, to really building those models at scale and being able to build a software architecture that expresses them at scale. And one team that's the research team. Uh, and we have a, a great director of research that we, are, we just hired whose job it is to just prove that the problems are solvable Mm -hmm. and to come up with non-scalable prototyped solutions to them without worrying about how to make them scale and then hand them to the other team and collaborate with that other team to get them to scalability. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you said the director of research has just joined, but is there um, a roadmap or a direction that that person comes on and, and says okay, here are the directions that we need to look into? Sure. I mean, the sort of glib line I have is you can tell if you have a real research organization uh, by going up to the director of research and saying, when is your next deliverable? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the truth of research is if you're really committed as a company to doing big R research, you need to be willing to stomach a certain amount of uncertainty. In many ways, when, you, when you're thinking about research, it can't be with the mindset of, well, when are you going to produce X result? It's more like, well, let's find an interesting problem that we know has business value. Great. Every couple of weeks, let's check in to see if this problem is more solvable than it was two weeks before. You know, in some ways, you start out by just enumerating, here are all of the unknowns that would make this problem unsolvable. And your goal every couple of weeks sprint is to retire some number of unknowns. Some sprints, you'll find more unknowns that you didn't Mm -hmm. know about, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to just use that to keep calibrating the research process. And you know you've won when you've got the unknowns down to a point where you say, great, a solution is known here. Let's productize it. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that the research projects that are happening are coming from, like you said, business value or value. At Takeometrics or in general, where do those come from? Great. Um, yeah. So they they come from a creative process, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, I would say my biggest challenge as a CTO that I'm facing today is how to build a culture of what I would call radical creativity. I think in a SaaS company, it's very easy to end up in a competition on the same set of features that everybody knows you should build, you know, right. the Henry Ford problem of building a better bicycle rather than building a car. Mm-hmm. 
in order to be able to originate great questions, you need to create a culture in which people can play with the data. So very tactically, for data science, this means you have to have a sandbox that is free of production constraints, that has all of your data in it, that allows a data scientist to explore freely. Like say, I want to run a query that's going to take 24 hours. Great, go do it. Here's a space with all of the data where you can go make that happen. And so we've created that kind of play space at the company. And what I'm looking for from the research group is to really use that playground to, to look at the wealth of data that we have and originate exciting avenues to produce value from it. Not you know, necessarily from interviews with customers or from the existing product, but to think much, much bigger about, given this data, what could I do? Mm -hmm. Of course, there is a certain amount of research that is tied to the existing product. We have an algorithm, make it better. But the things that really excite me about building a real research organization is the potential for it to create revolutionary change through imagining products that I can't even think of today. And is that how you measure success? Like, if that happens, you'll say, I was successful? A absolutely. I, I think we would measure success of that research group on the basis of asking great questions and coming up with nuanced answers to them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes negative, you know, this is like true of science, negative results have their own value. Knowing you can't do a thing can often lead you to the data you need to do it and then make that the problem of going mm -hmm. and finding the data to enable the algorithm. But yes, I would say that the real value of the research group is going to be through originating great creative ideas that add to our product in ways that we can't see on our roadmap today. How much is you know the fact that you're dependent on Amazon a factor in like the products you're able to build or the direction you're able to go or the things you're able to do? Sure, I and mean, you know the great thing about partnering with Amazon is that they are very invested in the success of the sellers that we're trying to help because mm -hmm. these sellers are fundamentally driving their catalog and and their marketplace. So we've found that. Amazon is very keen to help give us data, and they have a lot of data. Obviously, they're very careful with it. They make sure that it's, it's well secured, but we are able to get a lot of great data from them that we can work on. The sellers themselves also have their own sources of data that they can provide us. And in fact, one of our values is that because Amazon is both a partner and a competitor to many of these sellers, the sellers are able to trust us with certain kinds of data that they couldn't necessarily just give Amazon. And getting to meld the seller's understanding of their own business with the channel's data on how that business is performing and do data science on the union uh, has been really exciting. That's been where I think we, we provide the best value. So you've been in the retail technology space for a while. How has it changed over that time? Boy, I, I think that the biggest changes in the retail world have been how much of what you had to do yourself is now completely off the shelf. If you think mm -hmm. about what it took to build an e-commerce company 10 or 15 years ago, you barely even had Magento. You barely even had an out-of-the-box solution. You had to really craft your website, your shopping cart, your user experience, you know, your A-B testing tools, all of the things you need to craft a great landing pad for your commerce business had to be bespoke and built more or less from scratch or from very raw components. What Amazon has done, and Walmart.com as well at this point, mm -hmm. to change that game is that now you can get access to literally billions of buyers within 
I would say a few days of work. Mm -hmm. If you have a product and a listing and a few photographs and a description, you are now selling to the global marketplace within a couple of weeks. That's unprecedented, mm -hmm. right? That is a mind-blowing improvement in efficiency. So do most of those sellers that you're describing only sell on Amazon or do they also have their own storefront? A, a lot of them do have their own storefronts. So mm -hmm. there are a, a number of technologies out there that allow you to quickly now put up your own storefronts, right? Mm -hmm. Shopify is a great example. Uh, you know, Magento is still around and out there. Th and those places have also evolved to the point where the templates are already set. Like you just have to fill them with content and the content upload process is also very quick. The thing that they don't do though, right? When you're setting up your, your own store, the part that is still clunky is driving traffic, mm. right? That is still not turnkey unless you're selling on a channel like Amazon or walmart.com where the channel has taken care of the traffic problem for you. You still have to now go off and build your Facebook campaigns or build your Google AdWords campaigns and deal with very complex tools in order to drive traffic to your store. That's still true. At some point, I, I would imagine that will become more turnkey as well. And there are lots mm -hmm. of people working on that problem. Mm -hmm. But within the Amazon ecosystem, you know, um, Amazon not too long ago introduced like the sponsored products. Yes. My understanding is it's been huge. I certainly see it all over Amazon every time <laughs> I shop. And that's been a core offering for Ticometrics. Yeah. So I can see a situation where you know, Amazon makes it so darn easy to then advertise to yes. people on Amazon. It becomes, for a seller, a closed ecosystem. Yes. That's very effective, but more and more dependent on Amazon. I mean, certainly that's true. And Amazon has a very powerful advantage in being both a large retail channel and a major publisher, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're now the third largest ad platform in the world. Uh, and they got there in record time, in right. a matter of months, right? So yes, as a seller, you do become dependent on Amazon. But on the other hand, if you're a seller in today's world, chances are you are probably already fairly invested mm -hmm. in one of the major channels out there, whether that's Walmart or Amazon or Target or what have you. It is just tougher to do it on your own through your own websites. It's more lucrative. Your margins are higher when you have your own Shopify or Magento store, but you're going to have to be much more savvy to drive traffic at a low cost of acquisition to that property. Mm -hmm. And you're going to face competition from Amazon, who's advertising against you on Google, on Facebook, right. et cetera. <laughs> right, yeah. And a lot of the sellers that I see on Amazon are offering like Amazon has a listing for a blender. Right. And there are 10 merchants who are offering that blender. And it's, you know, I might be buying it from one of them, whoever, I don't know how that works. How do you, do you know how that works? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. It is a very complex system, right? So what you have on Amazon are what are called brand sellers, which means mm -hmm. that you're selling something that you own the intellectual property to, and you are the only seller of that product. You may have authorized some people to resell it for you, mm -hmm. but you, to some extent, control the sale of that product. And then you have brands that have really given themselves up to resellers. Mm -hmm. And as a reseller, you are one of an army of people selling the same good, whether that be a blender or a razor blade or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And at that point you're all fighting for this thing called the buy box. So when you go to buy something from Amazon and you see the item listed, you are actually typically seeing one offering of many. And you'll see this little thing that says, 
also offered by 21 other sellers, right, right? right? So you're seeing one of those sellers having won the buy box by dint of having either the best reviews, some combination of the best reviews and the lowest price, mm-hmm. right? And so on Amazon, it can be very, very highly competitive as a seller to try and get that buy box if you're reselling something. We have focused as a company on people who are running brands, mm-hmm. who have their own intellectual property, because at the end of the day, reselling is, is a heavily commoditized business. It, right. It's a race to the bottom, right. to the lowest price. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you own your own brand, if you have your own intellectual property, you can command better margins. You have much more control over your own pricing and your own own inventory. And for an optimization platform like ours, based on machine learning, we can give you a lot more intelligent decision-making on top of that. Right. Yeah. And those resellers... That's what I was trying to get at in terms of like that ecosystem that they're competing in to get that buy button. That's an Amazon thing. Yes. By and large. Absolutely. You know, there maybe there's eBay and those kinds of things, but it, it's really an Amazon. So it strikes me that they're very dependent on Amazon. You know, a lot of those resellers sell on many, many channels. So, mm-hmm. you know, being a reseller is is an arbitrage play, right? You mm-hmm. buy a good at X and you sell it at X plus N, mm-hmm. right? And so you have somewhere in a warehouse, 5,000, whatever it is, fidget spinners, right? And that you've bought, you know, they're resellers who have literally made their money by walking into a Toys R Us and mm-hmm. cleaning out a particular kind of toy and immediately reselling it mm-hmm. on a site. So all that being a reseller involves is having a stock of a particular good at a advantageous price. And then you can resell sell that good and you usually do on Amazon, on eBay, on Walmart, on your own site, right? Anywhere you can mm-hmm. to try and get the best price mm-hmm. uh, you can for, for each unit that you but sell. But like you said, it's heavily commoditized. It's business. heavily commoditized. And so the brands themselves, there's more need for sophisticated tools. Well, I mean, and, and there's a real problem, Chad, where some brands lose control of their own brand. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is if you are say that the lead manufacturer of fidget spinners, you may want to control the price of your own product, the way it's displayed, the way it's listed. Mm-hmm. If you have a large number of resellers that are selling it, mm-hmm. you start to lose some of that control. Resellers may undercut your own pricing. Resellers may end up relisting the product in ways that, that you don't like or don't want right. associated with your brand. So there is a crisis out there that's occurring where brands are trying to regain control mm-hmm of their own products from this massive reseller mm-hmm. base. I think that just happened with Apple, right? Finally did something with Amazon to uh, have everything be authorized. Yes, and so there's things you can do with Amazon. There's a, a system called brand gating, where you, as a certified brand on Amazon, you can ask Amazon to prevent anyone but your seller from being able to sell a particular branded item. It's a very coveted relationship. It's mm-hmm. not easy to get. But if you can get it, then you can finally regain control of the channel. And, and it makes it complicated. If you don't have control over who's selling your product, it's a disincentive to advertise because you might be advertising to help a reseller sell their good rather than yourself, right? right? So there's a lot of value to having tight control of your brand. Right. And I think probably with Apple, there's also a significant amount of like fake stuff Absolutely. on Amazon for that. Well, I mean, so. and that's a big part of the the, the mm-hmm. loss of brand control is that there are counterfeiters. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly uh, we see evidence of products that, enter the market from the same factories even. I mean, this is not necessarily on Amazon.com, though some of that does happen. If you look at other sites, like there's a site out there called Wish.com. If you mm-hmm. haven't visited, I, I, it's mind-blowing, right? Their prices 
are remarkably low because they're effectively selling unbranded goods that, mm -hmm. if you look at them closely, have clearly been manufactured in the same factories that manufactured the branded goods, mm -hmm. right? And so there is, again, you know, this, this goes to some fairly topical political issues today, some real conflict over intellectual property between brands in the U.S. and, say, manufacturers in other countries, mm -hmm. particularly China. So in Takeometrics' position in terms of integrating with Amazon, what visibility do you have beyond the vendors who signed up to take a metrics products? Do you get access to? No, I mean, you know, Amazon is very careful with their data. Mm -hmm. And so we only get the data to which we are authorized. Mm -hmm. So every seller that we have in our platform authorizes us. Now for us, that's a competitive advantage. When you've gotten 3,500 sellers who are successful to trust you with their data, it is actually an incumbent advantage because anyone entering the space has to, in order to get the same data, get those sellers to trust them with their data. But we, we really only see the data that we've been authorized to get. But now that we have a broad segment, I mean, now that we are approaching sort of that 1% of total revenue through third party on, on mm -hmm. Amazon Mark, we do get a chance to sort of see a larger picture mm -hmm. from our data. Yeah, but you can't necessarily offer products as part of Tasting Metrics that would like do brand monitoring and that kind of thing, or could you? Um, no, you, you know, a lot of the products that do that, by definition, they require scraping Amazon, yeah. which is against the terms of service, and we mm -hmm. play within the rules there. Right. Uh, there are people out there who offer those products, sort of the brand monitoring products. They're basically building sophisticated scrapers. scrapers right. Cool. Well, you mentioned biggest technical challenge is maybe the database layer yep. stuff now. Would you say the biggest organizational or cultural one is building the creative play area? Yes. I mean, I, it's not just creativity for, mm -hmm. you know, the research team, but there's so many different, I would say somewhat at this point overplayed methods like the hack day or 20% mm -hmm. time, which a lot of people try and do. And I've not seen work incredibly successfully in a lot of places. They're very difficult to implement. And somewhere in the midst of all of those different approaches is a way to really build great creativity from your engineering team. I mean, I think one of the travesties that I see in the tech world is the bifurcation of product and engineering, mm -hmm. where engineering is treated like order takers, right? Where you right. take these incredibly bright people, well-compensated bright people, right? And you reduce them to a level where all they're doing is following tickets on a backlog rather than using their giant brains and their ability, their creative energy, which they have lots of, to originate their own ideas for how to make the product better. And one of the things we're really seeking to do at Takeometrics, and it's the reason why product and engineering report both up to the same executive at Takea, is to not have that kind of adversarial relationship between product and engineering, but have everyone play right, in this very joyful and curious fashion with our data, with the problems of our customers to help them. You know, I think one of the things that I love about our team is that the people who work at Takeometrics are genuinely motivated by the social mission to help these small sellers, to help these third-party sellers succeed in the world. And that means that when we come up with new ways to do that, it's really gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I would absolutely say that that is a big organizational challenge. How do you create that time in a way that an organization that has real deadlines and real product to ship and real money to make understands, appreciates, and can cope with? Well, I wish you the best in figuring it out. Thank you so much, Chad. <laughs> so I assume that Takeometrics is hiring. 
Absolutely. So if people want to find out more about the company, find out more about the positions that you have, where can they do that? Our website is a great place to go, takeametrics.com. So that's T-E-I-K-A-M-E-T-R-I-C-S, takeametrics.com. And obviously, if you're uh, interested, feel free to ping me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to talk. Atish, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Chad, thanks for having me. It was fun. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.